she could have taken the easy road and she refused. She said, no, I will stay and I will fight. And she did so to such a degree, and this is one of the most extraordinary things of the story, that you know, she was very quickly serving alongside you know, seasoned, experienced intelligence operatives. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm your host and the editor. And today's episode is a chat with Damien Lewis, the author of Flame of Resistance. And this is the story of Josephine Baker, who was an amazing woman. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1908 and she lived her early years in poverty. She later became a stage performer, but a big break came in Paris where she achieved huge success and adoration. But then came the war and her role changed as she became a brilliant secret agent against the Nazis. It's a wonderful tale, but a heartbreaking one too, and so well told by Damien in his new book. Damien Lewis is a number one best-selling author whose books have been translated into over 40 languages worldwide. Previously, he's worked as a war and conflict reporter, the world's major broadcasters. Now, this episode is being released during the Jubilee weekend. If you haven't heard Tessa Dunlop's pod about the Queen during World War II in our Jubilee special, I recommend that. And then I also have seen that Gavin Mortimer, last week's guest, has been prompting plenty of discussion about David Sterling, the phony major. If you can like or subscribe, that would be wonderful. But I hope you enjoy the story of Josephine Baker. Uh, Damien Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be uh, good to be with you. Uh, so today we're talking about an incredible individual and the subject of your new book, your latest book, The Flame of Resistance, and that's Josephine Baker. Now, I had never heard of Josephine Baker until I picked up this book, and it's the most extraordinary story. Um, and it's it, it appears from having read the introduction a little bit of a labor of love for you. You've been working on this for quite a long time. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, off and on for, you know, 10 years, um, you know, researching and digging and unearthing layers of the story. It's been a, as much a detective story as a, as a work of history, uh, because many of the aspects, you know, of, of the war, particularly in France, where you obviously had, um, you know, French men and French women pitted against each other, a lot of the aspects of that story have been layered in, in, in levels of intrigue and secrecy because there were clearly things that people wanted to obfuscate and cover up and felt they couldn't tell. And indeed, when you're talking about, you know, the operations of the intelligence services, um, you know, uh, many people uh, go, choose to go to their graves with those secrets untold. And a lot of that happened with relation to this story. And Josephine Baker herself, she's much better known in France. Um, but could you just explain who she was before we, we go into the story itself during the war? Yeah, so Josephine was a, um, she was born in America, in St. Louis. Um, uh, she was born to a, um, a, a, a black mother, but it, her, her father, her, on that side, is it, the parentage is uncertain. Um, but she grew up basically in poverty in, in, in St. Louis, and she saw her, uh, her means to escape that being uh, her talent as a singer and a dancer. And so she, she left home at the earliest possible age and made her way basically to Broadway and managed to get her place, um, managed to get herself a place on a Broadway act as a, as a chorus girl. Um, and she tried to forge a career uh, largely in New York um, on the stage uh, as a dancer and a singer, and uh, was, was was mostly unsuccessful, largely due to the prejudice that then um, pertained uh, in America, where segregation was still, um, you know, uh, very much the thing. And so, at the tender age of age nineteen, she accepted a invitation to to sail to France, to Paris, and and to um, play the leading role in a show called Le Revue Negre. Um, which was a kind of scantily clad, um, some would say shocking, provocative act, um, but which, as it happened, 
took Paris by storm. And, and in Paris, Josephine and her fellow, um, fellow uh, dancers and singers found themselves, um, as, as you would in most of Europe at that time, in a comparatively prejudice-free part of the world. And, and very quickly, Josephine made Paris her adopted home, where she was feted by high society and, 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 and the French people alike and very quickly became a standout star, a superstar, in fact, of the 1920s and 30s. And, and, and prior to the war, to give you an indication of how famous she was, she was the most photographed woman in the world um, at that stage. Um, and she was one of the first women ever to play a, a starring role in, in the movies that she'd, she'd acted in. So she really had, and, and she'd performed and toured all over the world, Britain, across Europe, South America, um, and, 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 and f further afield. So she really was, you know, a, a pre-war superstar. And that's how she is largely known by those who know of her to this day. And so her, we'll, we'll come to her activities during the war in more detail, but the role that she played was that how has that become apparent in in france or is it is it a sort of an unknown uh, element of of her activity during the war her espionage a, a wartime story is really largely unknown um even in france um and you know as, as you know uh, josephine baker was elevated to the french pantheon um where it's the highest honor in the nation uh, very recently in the last few months. Um, yes, that was in November, wasn't it? I was yeah, reading about that. In November, yeah. Um, and she's one of only 80-odd individuals in the Pantheon, so it is a, it's an incredible honour. Um, and, you know, um, the French government, French president, cited her wartime role as one of the main reasons, but no one really knows um, what that wartime role entailed, certainly any detail. And, and that's largely because... Um, you know, when you served in the French intelligence services and the Allied intelligence services, you were expected to remain silent for at least 30 years and really for the rest of your life. And so because Josephine died, um, you know, basically 30 years after the end of the war, those espionage activities in which she became such a master um, were things that she really couldn't speak about. So the story has to be compiled from the testimonies and the stories told by all the, those individuals who served alongside her because she was part of a team, very much part of a team. And also, you know, from the documents that are now being released, uh, you know, very fortunately by the French and British governments, which, which you know, um, lend depth and, and truth to the incredible wartime exploits. So really, uh, her, her activity starts quite, quite soon after the Germans invade France and it's a it's an extraordinary time which you, you you describe really well in the book actually that the the way the once the germans invade the the sort of feeling in, in paris when you know it's chaos isn't it but for the for the french i mean what was it like in the immediate aftermath of the invasion because it's not something that we in britain i think are, are particularly aware of we know you know dunkirk and 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 then um, it, you know, Europe is under the Nazi jackboot. But what, what was what was life like in Paris in the immediate aftermath of the invasion? Well, um, of course, France had suffered terribly in the First World War, as, as had, you know, uh, Britain and other nations uh, and Germany included. And so the French people were very war weary, even as the Second World War loomed on the horizon. The French intelligence services, the Deuxième Bureau in particular, which was the, um, the, the arm that Josephine ended up being recruited by, they knew war was coming. They, that they you know, long before, um, you know, Hitler marched his legions into Western Europe, they knew war was coming. And they were also convinced that France would fall, that France could not stand. The Maginot line was completely outdated and outmoded. It would be bypassed and, and, and France would not stand. And so they, um, they tried to put in place safeguards especially in terms of intelligence gathering, so that when a significant proportion of France was occupied by, by Nazi Germany, as they believed it would be, they could still uh, manage to gather intelligence and get intelligence out of France to aid the Allies. Uh, what happened, of course, was the precipitate, um, you know, fall of France to the Blitzkrieg. In a matter of weeks, the, you know, all of France had either fallen under uh, Nazi Germany's control or, or been turned into the Vichy French, you know, a zone of... Um, of Vichy French uh, control. So, 
that that the speed of the collapse was meant that everyone was blindsided not just the french actually not just french intelligence british intelligence too you know one of the extraordinary things about you know that, that i learned via writing the book was that you know after the fall of france the secret intelligence service the british intelligence service had no agents at all of any shape or form anywhere in france it was a blank canvas and so i think it the speed of that collapse and the I guess the shame of that collapse and the shock of that collapse meant that, you know, that they, 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 they coined a phrase in, in Paris, uh, the dishonorable peace, la, la, la paix honteuse. So, you know, um, we have to make an accommodation with uh, our occupiers and it may be dishonorable and it may be distasteful, but this is the, the price of survival. And so when you know, Charles de Gaulle, General Charles de Gaulle, the, the leader of the Free French and embraced by Churchill, came to Britain and gave his June 1940 speech to, you know, a call to arms to the French people to rise up. Practically nobody heard him. Uh, and those that did hear him, very few were minded to pay heed. Um, so it was a it was a largely collaborationist defeatist mindset right at that very outset. And as you say, it's something that we don't we don't we, 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 I don't think we're very aware of it in the UK because we were not invaded. And so we have no experience of that. Um, and, you know, it, it's a situation that ended up pitting, you know, French men and French women against each other and families against each other fratricidally in in really bitter and 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 horrific uh, disputes and, and, and warfare. And that's something that this country, you know, Britain managed to to avoid. So how was Josephine uh, recruited? Basically, prior to the war, the single greatest challenge for the French intelligence services and indeed for the British intelligence services and Churchill uh, railed against this repeatedly was lack of funding and lack of staff. You know, a peace dividend after the First World War, the intelligence services in Britain and France were cut to the bone. And so as Nazi Germany flooded France in particular with with agents of the APWARE, the German Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, France was inundated and, and the Dizembro, the Bureau, the Counter Espionage Service, so those tasks with trying to fight against the flood of German agents coming in were, were completely snowed under. Very, very few agents and very little funding. And so they, and there was a standout traitor called, um, uh, called Ensign Orbert, who was a, a French naval officer who not only sold out suitcase loads of French secrets to the to the Germans, um, literally carried them to Belgium and handed them over, but also uh, was in the process of, of selling out the French naval codes uh, to the Germans when he was captured. So, you know, the, the Germans would have been able to read every single signal sent by the French fleet, which was the most fourth most powerful in the world at the time. And so the Design Bureau realised that, that, you know, they needed to try to boost their agent numbers and without a budget to do so and without any support from the French government really who, who, who really did not want to face what was coming they decided to utilize a, a system called the honorable correspondence and basically these are freelance voluntary agents spies who are recruited to uh, to carry espionage on behalf of a government out of patriotism um, and, and with a willingness and an ability because of what they do, largely with, you know, to do with their work, to travel freely and, and to carry out espionage. So, you know, classically, it would be businessmen, it would be journalists, actually, it would be anybody who could put themselves in a situation where that they could gather useful intelligence and also who had the ability to do so and, um, and not lose their nerve. And bear in mind, these were individuals who, um, you know, not only did they generally went everywhere unarmed but you know they had very little backup if they were uncovered and despite you know despite the fact they were freelance spies that wouldn't alter the fact that if they were captured they would face horrendous consequences I mean two two German female spies who were captured um, spying on behalf of Poland actually just before the war were both beheaded by the Germans and that was their um, their punishment for for espionage was, you know, to be to be beheaded. Um, so yeah, you face terrible consequences. And in the process of, of recruiting new a new um, raft of honourable correspondents, um, one of the um, impresarios, so the theatrical managers for Josephine Baker, 
suggested that she would be the perfect recruit. And the Dezembria were most unkeen because uh, one, uh, at that time, um, women were not seen as being uh, prime uh, uh, intelligence material. Uh, the case of Matahari, the famous um, uh, spy in the First World War who had been a double agent for the Germans and been captured uh, or exposed uh, was still, you know, very strong in everybody's mind. But I, I guess most importantly, uh, the, 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 the reservation was that, you know, this was a global superstar and how on earth could a global superstar be expected to slip through the enemy's clutches unnoticed and gather intelligence because their very profile uh, would surely mitigate against that. But the agent who um, was tasked to go and approach Josephine Baker, he was, a, he was an individual called Captain Jacques Abte, um, a Frenchman, but brought up on, 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 on the region bordering Germany, so fluent in German um, and, and with a somewhat Germanic appearance. When he went to recruit her, he, um, or to approach her, to sign her out, he was very, very um, skeptical and doubtful. Uh, he expected her to be one of those showbiz personalities who would shatter like glass at the first hint of danger. Um, and he drove out to her home in, 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 in uh, an, a, a region called Le Vecinet, at the um, Le Beauchene, a, a kind of chateau on the outskirts of Paris, expecting to be met by a, the typical Josephine Baker figure dressed in designer, scantily clad designer clothes, looking, you know, a uh, million dollars. And actually he turned up there and a figure emerged from the bushes of the garden, dressed in a pair of gardening trousers and an old battered felt hat with a tin of snails in one hand, which she had been gathering to feed to her ducks. So this was the other side of Josephine Baker that she kept very hidden. This was the down to earth, um, you know, feisty, um, very practical, um, you know, and, and very, very unrefined, very natural side of her that he just hadn't been expecting. And she welcomed him in, took him into her, her chateau, um, to, 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 the, to the drawing room, they sat in front of the fire. And very quickly, actually, Abte started to realise what it was about this woman who had made her such an incredible superstar, especially on the stage. And that was that she she had this almost unique ability, and, and I've had it described to me by one of her dancers who's still alive, a guy called Jean-Pierre Reggiori, um, uh, uh, and he, he described her ability to reach out from the stage and to make every single one of her audience feel not just special, but as if she was speaking directly to him or her, touching, touching them in their heart and their soul. So that ability to do that was very unique. And Abte felt that when he sat down to speak to her, he felt this powerful connection. And he realized pretty quickly that um, if they could harness that to the, to the ends to the, of intelligence gathering, you know, and if she were, and, she, and if she were willing and, and able, then they, that they potentially had a very potent and powerful special agent, uh, uh, honorable correspondent on their hands. And so he said to her, you know, are, 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 would you, you know, words to the effect of would you be willing to serve um, and be recruited, you know, uh, to the Dizian Bureau? And she basically said words to the effect, France has made me all that I am, and I am ready to give France and the Allies my life. And so, um, you know, very quickly, she, um, she, she basically signed up and said, what do you need me to do? And he said, well, you know, you need to think of yourselves now as one of the team. You are now one of the one of the Dizian Bureau's brothers. And, and the, the first, I guess, test that he set her was that at that stage, and we're talking before war's outbreak, no one knew, none of the Allies knew what the intentions of the Italians Mussolini would be once war was declared. And of course, we needed to know. It was absolutely vital to know, especially for you know, control of the Mediterranean, apart from many other things. And so Abte said to her, look, you, know, you have a very special in with the Italian embassy in Paris. Go there. Use your charms and your powers and your, and your very prestige, your very profile to try to winkle out the Italians what their intentions are. And about seven days later, she called him up and said, look, we need to meet. And nothing would ever be said over the phone, which was revealing. And, and they met uh, in central Paris and she said, and she revealed to him what the, exactly what the Italian intentions were, that Mussolini had already made a pact with Hitler and that once war was declared, that would be the, the access, that would be the alliance that was struck. It's, 
it's such an incredible um, um, story of, of of how her motivation is patriotism for France, isn't it? it which is it's really striking the, her love for France, um, and and I guess that's tied up with her personality. It's, it's um, there's a wonderful scene in the book where she uh, gets everyone. Um, up and dancing she sort of drags people up from their chairs and gets them dancing but she she really just fell in love with france almost as soon as she arrived didn't she and that's what her main motivation for working for the dizzy mbo well she fell in love with france but you know bear in mind the french people fell in love with her but but also the people of europe fell in love with the people of britain fell in love with the people of you know holland sweden switzerland you know italy even fell in love with her um so you know this was a mutual thing um I think she found the freedom of Europe after America immensely invigorating and refreshing, and she felt she could breathe. Um, but more importantly, you know, she had also been to perform in Austria and Germany. And the first time she'd been there, a, a decade or more before the war, she had been feted and, and, and welcomed with open arms. And then she'd been there, you know, um, several years after and had an absolute absolutely horrendous time horrific and and seen for herself the true face of nazism because of course you know being black and being a woman and actually being married to a jewish man at the time she was you know public enemy number one and 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 you know goering um hitler's you know propagandist in chief had made it completely clear he'd published leaflets in which he'd he basically identified josephine baker as epitomizing all that the all that the uh, the nazi regime stood against and so when the drums of war were beating from Berlin ever more powerfully, you know, you can imagine it from her perspective. She had fled America where she had been, you know, plagued by prejudice. She'd arrived in Europe, which was this, this, this dream world where she felt she could be who she wanted to be. And, she, and indeed she had, you know, she'd achieved that. And suddenly it looked as if at the behest of Hitler and his cronies, all of that was going to be taken away from her. And if, you know, if, if Nazi Germany wasn't fought and defeated, then where in the free world would survive? Um, because, of course, you know, the Third Reich was all about world domination. And if uh, Hitler and his cronies achieved their aims, where in the world could someone like Josephine Baker and all the other, you know, uh, Josephine Bakers of the world perform and flourish uh, if if they were ascendant, so you know she had a absolutely driving um, reason to to stand and fight. That being said, she was American um, of birth, and she was a very very high profile American citizen. So when war broke out and when Nazi Germany invaded, as did many many Americans, she could simply have gone to the American embassy in Paris and said, "Look, get me out, get me back to America, get me to safety." She could have taken the easy road, and she refused. She said, no, I will stay and I will fight. And she did so to such a degree. And this is one of the most extraordinary things of the story that, you know, she was very quickly serving alongside, you know, seasoned, experienced intelligence operatives, not just Jacques Atte, but Jacques Atte's boss, uh, Colonel, Colonel Paul Pellol, who became the head of the, the kind of clandestine French intelligence service during the war. Um, you know, a, a, a hugely experienced, towering individual within intelligence circles. And to a, to a man, they all say of her, you know, during the war years and from the very get-go, from the outset, they all say of her. The most extraordinary thing about her was she never faltered. She never believed for one moment or feared for one moment that the, you know, that the Allies would not win and that good would not overcome. And she was always convinced from, from the very outset that, that America would join the war in due course and once america joined the war uh, you know the tide of the fortune of the conflict would turn so before america joined the war britain stood um against the germans in isolation and so the secret intelligence service uh, mi6 was uh, working with i guess de gaulle's free french um uh, intelligence service, but also the Vichy, the, the uh, SIS were keen to maintain links with, with Vichy, but they at the same time didn't want the Free French to be aware of that. So it's quite an interesting dynamic with the three um, different intelligence organizations. Yeah, it was a very, very difficult balancing act for um, British secret intelligence service. On the one hand, they had the Gauls sitting in London, um, you know, who, who was busy founding his own um, 
Free French Intelligence Service, which went through various names and iterations. So let's just call it the Free French Intelligence Service. On the other hand, you had Paul Pellol, uh, head of the Dizian Bureau, and, um, and, and many other seasoned intelligence operatives who are now officially running an intelligence operation for, for, for the Vichy French government, but unofficially, under, beneath that, running a shadow organization which was which, which aimed to gather intelligence for the Allies. And, and just to give you an example, you know, to put some flesh on the bones of that, Pelol set up what he called the Travail Rural, which is Rural Works Programme. And basically his intelligence agents posed as rural development workers. That's the cover he gave them because he realized that, that posing as rural development workers, they could travel all over France, pretending to be interested in vineyards or orchards or cornfields or whatever it might be. And actually they could be gathering intelligence. It, was, it provided the perfect cover. So Pelol was busy setting up his, um, his shadow intelligence network while ostensibly actually working as an intelligence you know, chief for an intelligence organization which was serving the Vichy regime, which was allied to the Germans. So this was a very, very delicate balancing act. And on the other hand, de Gaulle in London said, you know, you are, you will have nothing to do with Vichy France or the Vichy intelligence operatives, you know, that they are, they are beyond the pale. They are, you know, they are the evil. And so the secret intelligence service played a double game. On the one hand, they said, yes, uh, you know, to, to de Gaulle's um, operations, uh, yes, we obviously are having nothing to do with uh, anything that's going on with, uh, you know, Vichy France or Vichy intelligence agents. And on the other hand, they were very much engaged, trying to engage and reach out to all those individuals who, before the war, they had had such a close and fruitful and mutually beneficial and trusting intelligence um, partnership with. And the key individual in all of that, all of this was... Um, this incredible figure who I, I, I had I knew nothing about prior to researching Josephine's story, whose name was um, Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, um, at, at commander. And, and, and Dunderdale, you know, was this to this day is this legendary figure within secret intelligence circles. I mean, he is, you know, he's celebrated as the, the example of what an intelligence agent should be like to this day, uh, you know, and. Dunderdale had been the Paris spymaster for the secret intelligence service in, in the decade or so running up to the war, working very closely with Pelol, with Abte, with all these figures in the Dizian Bureau. And of course, once France falls, and it falls so quickly that no one is ready or prepared and, and, and can make contingencies, the whole of the French intelligence network is dead. And so the key task come summer of, of June, July, August, September of 1940 is how does do all those Vichy French intelligence operatives somehow reach out to London, reconnect with the secret intelligence service without the Vichy French government realizing and without de Gaulle's free French realizing to start the flow of intelligence happening once again, which was absolutely vital because at that stage, of course, Britain was, you know, reeling from the Battle of Britain, about to be reeling from the Blitz. And, and there were any number of other battles to fight around the world as, as, as the war spread to a truly global conflict. So that flow of intelligence, re-establishing that was, was absolutely key. So Josephine, she moves from Paris to the Vichy um, part of France and in the Dordogne, this marvellous chateau. I had a look at some pictures of it. It looks fantastic. Um, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. So, so she's there for a bit and then, and then moves to... Uh, and 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 does some travel around Spain and Portugal and and South America, and then moves to North Africa. So, and all along, uh, all whilst traveling, doing these these trips, she's she's um, carrying intelligence to and from um, the British and and the French, isn't she? Yeah. So you know, come you know October November nineteen forty, uh, Pelol uh, and. The Vichy French Intelligence Services, the shadow Vichy French Intelligence Service, has gathered a huge body of, you know, vital intelligence for Britain. So, you know, eight German agents sent to Britain, uh, you know, Luftwaffe air bases, um, 
you know, uh, German attempts to subvert the Irish and, 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 and use Ireland as a landing base to invade Britain, invasion plans for Operation Sea Lion, the invasion craft for Operation Sea but they have the reams of intelligence that they've gathered via their working relationship with, with the German occupiers, and they need to get it to London, and they have no means to do so. And so Josephine and Jack Abte are tasked to carry this intelligence to Portugal, which is Britain's, Britain's oldest ally, of course, you know, with a, with, a, um, with a treaty dating back hundreds of years, and where there was a very active uh, secret intelligence service um, office based in the British Embassy. And to get that, that, that this, this, the, the, these reams of documents to Portugal, to, to that location, and get them back to London. Um, and the, the, the means that they set upon to do so, again, uh, you know, using Josephine's stardom as their cloak and their dagger, is that she pretends and actually does organise to go on a performing tour to, to, to Lisbon, to the capital of Portugal, and from there onwards to South America, because, of course, the war hasn't stopped the need for people to be entertained and for entertainers to perform. And so she sets up a few, you know, um, performances in Lisbon and Abte, her, her Dizian Bureau, uh, you know, agent partner becomes officially um, her, her tour manager. So he's got a false name, a false passport. And in his false passport, he has stamped the details that he is, you know, He's a former ballet instructor from Marseille, and he's acting as her tour manager for her forthcoming Lisbon and South America tour. And all the intelligence that, 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 that they've gathered is either transcribed using secret ink onto the musical score sheets that Josephine, being such a standout performer, has to carry wherever she goes on a tour in all these voluminous tour trunks, or in some cases where you couldn't do that. So with original documentation or photographs, which had to arrive in London absolutely as they were, it's hidden within her tour luggage uh, with the hope that, you know, because of her standout signal stardom and her incredible, you know, the fact she's recognised and fetid everywhere she goes, the hope is that, you know, no one will think to search her luggage. And so they bought a train in, um, in, in France, uh, you know, uh, near, near the near the chateau in the Dordogne, where where they where they'd made their their resistance base, and they set off for Portugal via Spain, in the hope they can get all this material through, uh, make contact with the intelligence services, British intelligence service, and get it smuggled to London. And they are also hoping to get themselves to London, Abte and Josephine both, because they want to go there, meet with de Gaulle, and 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 sign themselves up efficient, officially for the Free French Intelligence Services. Uh, Josephine and, and Jacques Abte, they have this wonderful relationship, um, which I really enjoyed reading about. Particularly, there's one moment where they're having a bit of a row and she pinches him. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, but it's a fantastic relationship they had. Um, it would be great to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, Josephine and, and Jacques Abte, they fall in love. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's perhaps not, <laughs> you could argue, it's not perhaps the most um, professional things to do as an agent handler to his, uh, to his rookie agent, to his honourable correspondent. But, you know, um, it was war and, uh, you know, both of them were separated from and unable to make contact with their respective partners. And so, you know, in war, these, these kind of um, relationships um, you know, were, were, were fairly common. But, but the standout thing about that relationship is that it endures throughout the war and it, and it endures throughout all the ups and downs of their, their, their espionage and intelligence adventures. In a sense, you could argue it gives their, it gives their espionage partnership a certain strength and, and durability, which it would not have had otherwise. Um, and, you know, even after the war, um, you know, that they remained... The closest of friends and the and the most endearing and um, enduring supporters of each other through all their trials and tribulations post World War Two, and those were not inconsiderate because a lot of the activities that, that that they ended up getting involved in in terms of espionage really pushed the envelope in terms of what was legal and acceptable because you know in war you have to use whatever means comes to your disposal. 
and you have to make alliances and partnerships with with all different types of individuals you know if they can help you achieve your ultimate goal and the ultimate goal was of course the, you know the defeat of nazism and you know the 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 uh the triumph of the allies and so in that in pursuing that that aim they end up you know um involving themselves with you know former mafia figures and assassins and forgers and all the rest of it uh, to to try to to win through now one part of the book that i found really interesting was that she meets franco but not the franco franco's brother nicholas i think it was and what interested me was the iberian pact and and the role it played in ensuring that spain did not ally too closely with the axis powers um so so yeah i, I was interested in that actually because i i guess my assumption had been that spain was you know closely linked with um uh, Franco and Hitler would have been, you know, close partners. But the Iberian Pact suggests that wasn't the case. And, and that was something that Nicholas Franco was quite keen on, on pursuing, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, you know, on paper, it, it would seem bizarre that Spain did not enter the war on the side of the Axis, uh, especially bearing in mind, you know, the support that both Italy, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany had given Spain during the Spanish Civil War. You know, I mean, tens of thousands of German Italian troops and, 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 and uh, you know, Air Force um, had fought on the side of, uh, on General Franco's side. So um, Spain owed uh, the Italians and the Germans. And, and it, 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 it's, it's hard to understand why, especially during the early stages of the war, you know, when on all fronts, you know, Britain was, was, was facing defeat and, and Nazi Germany, the Axis powers were triumphant. Um, the Iberian Pact goes a little part of the way to helping explain some of that. So this, this, this alliance between Portugal and Spain, um, which by default tied Spain into Britain because Portugal has such a long-standing alliance with Britain. It was kind of a backdoor means via which the, the, the fortunes of Spain could be tied more closely in with the with, with the UK, and indeed, um, even as you know the war clouds of war were gathering, and uh, it was becoming obvious that you know uh, peace would not prevail, that pact was strengthened. It was it was it was strengthened by Franco, and and uh, the clauses were um, made more enduring in the hope that it would um, that, that it would you know prevent Spain from from joining Germany and Italy. And, you know, had Spain done so, and, you know, Gibraltar would certainly have fallen um, and the Mediterranean would, could have, you know, would have been close to allied shipping largely with, with Italy at one end and, 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 and a, you know, Axis allied Spain on the other and Gibraltar gone, um, you know, it, 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 it could have changed the course of the war. And that was the great fear. It was an enormous fear, in fact, of, Secret Intelligence Services and the Special Operations Special Operations Executive, the SOE, which was coming becoming more and more involved in 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 Portugal and in Spain, um, and it was one of the things that they were actually training uh, guerrilla forces on the ground to try and and agents to try and uh, prepare to counter against should that happen was somehow to start you know, you know a, 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 a guerrilla uprising within Spain itself and and you know on the Portuguese border to try and strike back should 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 uh, Spain uh, step over the line and join the Axis powers and should should Gibraltar be threatened so yeah um, something I didn't know very much about and um, I, I also found surprising I wasn't really aware of it at all. So Josephine moves to North Africa doesn't she and, and um, leaves Marseille and and uh, heads heads to North Africa. She's immediately arrested, though, isn't she? Because, but not for the reasons we all think she would have been arrested. She's arrested through some rather uh, dodgy dealings by the, the 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 owners of the Opera House in Marseille. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, Josephine, uh, after after Portugal ends up in Marseille with uh, with Pelol, um, and she 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 mounts. Uh, La Creole, an opera, because she needs money. She needs money to perform. 
and she needs to maintain her cover. Crucially, Pelos says, look, you've got to maintain your cover. You've got to perform because you need to be seen as a performer. If you don't perform and you make it clear you will not perform because the Nazis are, you know, in, in, in France, she'd said, I will never perform whilst, whilst Nazi Germany controls France. She said, you can't do that because you will blow your cover. So she, she puts on a, 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 a several several performances of several weeks of performances of La Criole, which is an opera, it's a comic opera, um, and it was highly successful. However, come January uh, 1941, um, Pelol warns her that she's basically on the Gestapo's hit list and they're going to come and grab her um, and that she's in grave danger. And he says, you have to get to, the, the way out of this is to get to North Africa, uh, head for um, Morocco, which was, you know, a, a, a French part of French North Africa. And the upside, this kind of like, you know, the, the other upside to this was that the the intelligence pipeline, which was then going to be run from Pelol in Vichy, France, to the SIS in London, was going to be run via a, uh, a steamship company called the Louis Dreyfus Steamship Company. And so that 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 ship, which was uh, which was running phosphate, uh, a genuine uh, phosphate business, um, so plying between you know North Africa and and Portugal largely. That ship was going to be a courier vessel for intelligence dossiers, which Pelol was getting out of France to to North Africa, and then from there to Portugal to be flown to London. So this was the new route for the intelligence pipeline that that the SIS and the and Pelol's uh, intelligence outfit had determined. And so Josephine had to sail from Marseille. Marseille, sorry, very early in January 1941. Uh, and to do so, she had to uh, truncate her performances of La Creole. And a deal was cut with the opera managers that they, they said, if you can get a doctor's certificate to say that you are too ill to perform, we can invoke our insurance clause and everyone will be happy. And they, understand, they said, we understand you're a true French patriot and we're right behind you. So as long as you can get us that doctor's certificate, it's not an issue. So Josephine went to see a, a, a medic in Marseille and actually she was, she was ill. I mean, it was, a, it was a record cold winter and, and, and she'd caught, a, she'd caught a, an infection on her chest. And the doctor actually genuinely said, you need to go to a sunny part of the world and recuperate. And so she'd sailed to North Africa believing that everything was squared away with the opera, with the Marseille opera, and that she, um, you know, she, uh, she had, you know, she, that they had no, um, no truck with what she was doing, but she arrived in North Africa to get arrested, fearing, of course, that she was being seized by the Vichy authorities, it being, it being French North Africa, because they, they, they'd been told by the, their, their, their German Nazi um, bosses to, to seize her and actually she was being arrested because the managers of the Marseille Opera had decided that, that she owed them 400,000 francs and they were not going to stand by their, their agreement. And it took a personal intervention from, from Paul Pelol, the intelligence boss from, uh, from Marseille to actually get her released. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of like not quite the expected arrival she'd been hoping for. Yeah, outrageous behaviour. Um, now she, I wanted to, because we're running out of time, but um, she she had, at the same time, um, actually, I might have this wrong, and you can clear it up for me, but Winston Churchill is sort of heading to, to Morocco around about the same time. And she has a kind of... Um, uh, she, she, she says that she uh, exchanged telegrams with Churchill. Is that right? Yeah, so she... Um... She found Churchill, well, she found de Gaulle and Churchill both hugely inspirational figures. And she was amazed and heartened by, in particular, Churchill's ability to stand at the world's darkest hour, not just Britain's darkest hour, but the world's darkest hour, and to never falter. She did not know where that constancy, that belief, that um, unbelievable courage, and single-mindedness came from, but she she absolutely applauded it, and it inspired her. It gave her strength, um, and and you know she had performed in the in, in the UK prior to the war, uh, and she was invited by Churchill at the end of the war to come and, and to come and be the standout performer for for the VE Day celebrations. And so you know the two were known to each other, um, and yes, she did. Uh, you know she did exchange telegrams with Churchill after the war, 
and, and you know and, and there was a there was a friendship maintained um, and Churchill uh, Churchill arrived actually in Morocco where Josephine and Jacques Abte ended up being based as part of the Casablanca conference so when the the American and British torch operation torch landings happened in North Africa Churchill and Roosevelt and and and, and uh, Stalin was supposed to come but of course couldn't make it met to try to determine the ongoing course of the war and at that stage there was a realization among the senior uh, Allied commanders in North Africa that Josephine in 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 North Africa could could again play this kind of central vital role one in pulling together this disparate alliance of you know Vichy, former Vichy French free French uh, uh, North Africans um, British and American troops because she was this iconic international figure she uh, who who was such a cheerleader for the allied cause so they gave her this role of kind of being this 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 this, this figure to pull the coalition together and to give it strength and meaning and and the means of doing so largely was that she starts she launched these series of epic death-defying tours where she and a bunch of fellow performers and largely Jacques Capte as well uh you know boarded battered old vehicles, jeeps if they could get hold of them, and travelled the length and breadth of North Africa, performing to anyone from world leaders down to the, the troops on the front lines and were attacked by the German Air Force and, and, and suffered many trials and tribulations. But, you know, Aleppo doesn't change its spots. And the really interesting thing about Josephine's uh, espionage work was that by now, we're talking late 43, early 44, she had, you know, the student had become the master. So from being the uncertain student of espionage under Jacques Abte, she had gone off and carried out numerous solo espionage operations herself alone when Jacques Abte could not travel because he didn't have the visas and the profile that she did and was, was constrained from going anywhere. And so she'd really taken flight as a, as a true master of espionage. And realising that, the Allies set a, a final kind of, you know, espionage duty across North Africa, which was to try to work out how serious was the danger that the peoples of North Africa would believe the Nazi propaganda, that, you know, uh, Nazi Germany was, a, was, was an answer to, to uh, you know, in, uh, British imperialism and French colonialism, and that, you know, joining forces with, with, with Berlin and Hitler would actually be an antidote to the to the many decades of colonialism that, that, that had, um, had pertained in those areas. And so her role was to sound out the level of unrest and resistance and to work out how to keep the anti-Nazi coalition together for long enough to win North Africa, which was vital because that was the springboard for the liberation of Southern Europe. Well, she's a hugely successful agent and so I, I, I mean, the story is is just so fantastic. But I want, just wanted to end it really talking about herself. Um, she always wanted children, and she was unable to have them. And and she also suffered um, some very serious illnesses during the war as well. I, I, so I just wanted to to um, if you could talk a little bit about that because it, it really does, I guess. Um, it's it, it's a real testament to her sort of strength that she got through all these trials and tribulations. Yeah, I mean, the war is very nearly the death of her many times over. And, um, you know, she, she, for many months in Maasai, in, in Maasai in North Africa, she is, sorry, um, Casablanca in North Africa, she is, she's in a clinic, in the Comte clinic, a private clinic in Casablanca, fighting at death's door. Now, some people have argued that she, she may not have been as ill as, as it was maintained all the time. The reason being that her clinic, the Comte clinic became this perfect espionage hub. It became the dead letter drop for Abte and all these agents working across North Africa. It became the, the, the in, inviable meeting place for all the agents that they were running in their network. So Josephine was this kind of standout iconic figure that anyone could go and visit because everybody had an interest in her well-being, and anybody could take any intelligence they wanted to her, drop it there for onward transmission to to London and Washington, because by that stage, of course, they were largely serving serving as, as agents for the British and the Americans. 
And so, yeah, she 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 fought fought the Grim Reaper many times over, and 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 at many stages, Doctor Comte, you know, the, the the chief medic of the Comte Clinic, and Jacques Abte and others who were close to her, believed that uh, she was um, no longer for this world. And 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 you know, by 1946, she was hospitalized again in Paris because the war had really, really, you know, those years of back-to-back -back operations, the stress, the intrigue, the the exhausting pace of operations had absolutely taken her to the limit and beyond. And largely because of those illnesses she suffered through the war, she wasn't able to have children, which was her great dream in life, was to raise a family. And so really she gave everything, you know, you, you could argue, um, you know, and, and more to, to the war effort. And, you know, one of the standout things about Josephine Baker after the war is that whenever she was asked, you know, because of course she went back to being a performer, and whenever she was asked what was the greatest standout, you know, uh, episode of her life, she would not say, oh, when I performed the X or, you know, when I appeared in, in, in Y movie, she would always say the war years. So the war years were the watershed moment. They were the making of her. They were the they were the the the, the years that changed her from being a standout, glitzy, acclaimed performer into being a serious uh, mover on the world stage. Who who became a campaigner for freedom and liberty in all its forms for the rest of her life, as well as being a standout performer. So for her. Yeah, that you know, this was this was her this was her time. The war was her time. She paid so much for it, but it was her it was her standout moment in her life. Well, that's a wonderful way to end it, I think, Damien. Fantastic book, The Flame of Resistance. Highly recommended. Incredible, uh, an incredible woman. Um, thanks very much, Damien. Thank you very much. Really good to be on. I do hope you enjoyed that story. What an amazing woman. Now, coming up, we've got Con Igledon. He's a historical fiction author of great success, talking about Pericles and 5th century Athens. Anthony Beaver, interviewed by friend of the show Rob Lyman about the Russian Revolution and Civil War. And Rob and myself will be chatting about that interview. Then we've got Gretchen Freeman on the Anglo-Irish Treaty that was 100 years ago. So there's plenty of great content still to come. You can get hold of me on the Twitter at OllieWCQ. Damien is at Author D. Lewis. And there are links in the show notes. And I'll leave you until next week. Thank you and good night.